Well, if you'd like to start flipping in your Bibles, it'll be a a little delayed in the message, but we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. And if you've missed a few of the last sermons or a lot of the last sermons, there's good news because we're going to be tying a lot of things together this morning. Um, I'm excited about that. Ultimately, our job as the church, our goal, is to build the kingdom of God. That's one of the, I think, simplest ways to explain, to express, to remind ourselves what our purpose is. And that's a phrase that um, maybe doesn't give us a lot of specific direction in our day-to-day lives, but ultimately, that's what our call is. Now, one of the things that I've come to realize about living the Christian lifestyle, and we, we discussed this um, last month in, in one of our messages, ultimately, as a human being, there are three ways to live our lives. I'm going to illustrate. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to see these. Okay. So there's three chairs that we can sit in as human beings living in this world. Three ways of operating as human beings. The first chair represents who we are in our carnal nature, our just default, uninterrupted, natural, um, instinctual, you could even say, to a degree, animalistic tendencies. That's this chair. Our flesh, like any, any other animal species on the planet, strives to do one thing, and that is survive. Any other species on the planet will survive, will, will put itself before everything around it. And probably one of, the, one of the greatest but forgotten mysteries and miracles about the creation of our world is that everything works in balance. That, that if it were up to any one species, that one species would just eradicate everything around it. Because that's what every species tries to do. Trees never stop their growth because they're hindering the growth of another plant. We never see... I, I, I've got some, some trees in our backyard, and I noticed that as these trees grew together, they were fighting against each other, and the branches where they met were dying. Now, those trees don't talk to each other and say, hey, why don't we just go our separate directions, right? And, and let's stop fighting because we're hurting each other. Trees don't do that. Trees just grow as tall and as wide as they can. And it is an incredible miracle that nature is able to find some sort of balance. That no species, other than humans... No species is able to eradicate everything else. Until, of course, we move one from one place to another, and then 
we have issues. But there's a natural order. But that's what this is, is in the animal kingdom, animals will do whatever they have to do to survive. And we have a part of us that is in this same place. We have a part of us that will always seek our own self-preservation. We have survival instincts. And the more we learn about psychology, the more we understand that and the more we can develop that. But that's the basic understanding. This chair is mankind just living purely out of our instinct. Which is why for the vast majority of human history, the only time a culture would refrain from completely eradicating another culture is if they weren't sure they could accomplish it. That was the check and balance. It was fairly rec relatively recently in human history that we began to live at peace with one another by choice and out of a desire to preserve the other. That's the first chair. The second chair, and again, this will start to sound familiar because I didn't use this illustration, but we talked about this. This is law. In the Christian context, this is where God has given us laws and commandments, the law in the Old Testament and even guidelines before that, where we seek to break out of simply our pure, instinctual. This is what tells us it doesn't matter how much you hate them, don't murder them. This is what tells us it doesn't matter what your physical desires are telling you, be faithful to your spouse. This chair is what tells us I shouldn't listen to this. And this chair begins to seek and strive to do something different. But ultimately, when we live in this chair, we are still very much at war with and unable to overcome this. Which is why Israel never got it right. Because Israel tried and tried and tried. And we can say, well, maybe they didn't try hard enough and it's not really for us to judge. But they tried and tried and tried to follow the law. But this always won. And this is where humanity operated until about 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, paid the penalty for our sins, and gave us the Holy Spirit to live within us. Something that would be deeper than our flesh, than our mind, than our will, than our emotions, that would begin to radically give us new life and change from the inside out. That's what this chair is. Jesus illustrates this. When he says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, don't even allow yourself, I, I say, do not even be angry. That sermon coming back a little bit now. That the standards that Jesus has is not just fight the urges, but be radically changed from within. And so being a Christian, after you become a Christian, ultimately, the process of sanctification is just taking the spirit of and allowing the spirit of God within us to work its way out and to bring this into subjection under the will of God in our lives. It is a disciplining of our flesh which will always work against us. 
Because what your body will do, it doesn't matter how much you pray for peace, if someone comes up to you and starts screaming in your face, your body will react to that, right? If someone comes up and starts screaming, and sometimes it's helpful, right? If you're, if you're driving your car and someone cuts out in front of you, you're going to get an immediate adrenaline spike. You're going to become focused. Your movements are going to become faster. That is your body preserving itself in that moment. But when it's someone reacting to you in anger, your body will do that same thing. Your body will say, fight that person, attack that person. They are a threat to you. Put yourself first, put your safety first, and attack them to preserve you. And so the life of a Christian is continuing to make this chair live in subjection to the Spirit of God within us. With an, uh, and, and so often we miss this and we just jumble all of this together and we don't recognize and we just identify, we say, I'm weak. I am selfish. I am prone to temptation when ultimately it is that our, and this is language that Paul uses throughout the New Testament, our flesh is weak. Our flesh is subject to temptation and we need to make a differentiation. So the Christian life is just, it's, it's pretty easy to get to this chair. You just read all the rules, and then you're here. And then you fight, and you kind of, you slip back this way, but you're here. The Christian life is moving piece by piece, piece after piece, from this chair to this one as we give God authority in more areas of our life, and as we grow, and as we walk, and as we are strengthened in our faith. And it can be difficult at times. So what we're going to look at today is a passage that I believe illustrates a time when Jesus' flesh was trying to win out. We're going to observe what he did in order to fight against that. And at the end of the message, I'm going to give you a challenge to do the same. And some language, some language that we are going to be adopting as a church collectively as we seek to live lives that mirror the one that Jesus lived. So John chapter 13, we're, we're at the very end of Jesus' ministry. Now what comes later in this chapter, we're not going to read this, but it's important that we are aware that it's coming. Immediately after the text that we're going to read is where Jesus announces that one of his disciples will betray him. So Jesus is at dinner. This is the Last Supper. It's his last evening with the disciples before his passion and crucifixion. He's about to tell them that one of these 12 of his, um, the, these 12 
disciples that have been with him for years. They have gone everywhere with him. They have been close. He has loved them. He has poured himself into them. He's about to announce that one of them will betray him. We can imagine, it doesn't take a lot of imagination, but we can imagine how difficult this evening must have been for Jesus. Can you imagine sitting at that table, looking out, knowing one of these twelve is about to betray you, looking at Judas? Can you imagine what your instincts would be doing in that moment? And here's the thing, and this is what we need to remember. Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. So he was holy and without sin, but he had the same body you do. Which means when someone got in his face, his physical reaction, right, the blood rushing up, getting warm, getting hot, getting tunnel vision, the physical was the same because he was fully man. So all of those things, all of those physical and even emotional, right, because we can see emotions in the brain, all of those are the same as what you experience. So imagine sitting at, at that table. You see, when I'm about to do something difficult, something that worries me, I want to be with the people I'm closest to. I want to be with the people I'm comfortable with. I don't want to be with my enemies. I want to be somewhere safe. If I'm going into a stressful situation, I want to be with my wife. I want to be with my kids. When I'm nervous about something, when I'm concerned about something, I'll go give one of my kids a hug and just say, I don't, if I'm worried or, or if it's a situation where I'm feeling like I made a mistake or I messed something up, I go to those that I'm comfortable with. I wouldn't want to go to a room that had a person in it that I knew was about to betray me. I would be inclined to send that person away. So we know just by our own human experience that in this moment, Jesus' flesh was fighting against what he needed to do. So how did he respond? Let me read. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, so he was aware of his kingship, he was aware of his divinity, he was aware of his stature. Knowing that, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You may have heard, but just to reiterate, foot washing was not an uncommon practice in their day. They wore sandals, they walked on dirt roads. When they got to the place that they were going, they were very, very dirty. All right? Has anybody ever accidentally worn sandals to like do yard work? I've done that. I've got, I've got like my my Keens, which are like the, like the hybrid sandal hiking shoes, and I'll like go rake in the yard or something, and I come in and and I just my feet are gross. And we have we're lucky enough that we have you know like plumbing, and I have a hose outside, and I can wash my feet off with that. They didn't have that, so they would get to wherever they were going after traveling, and their feet would be dirty and often they would just there would be water by the door and they would wash their feet but if you were wealthy enough to pay someone you could have a servant that would wash your feet for you now and again you may have heard all of this before but just to reiterate so we understand it in that culture washing someone's feet was one of the most demeaning things you could do in large enough households, it wasn't even the servants who washed the feet. It was the lowest of the servants. Some servants saw themselves as above washing other people's feet. It was humiliating. It was degrading. It was insulting. It was a low, low thing to do. In our culture, I, I tried and I looked online to find, you know, what's the image? What is the thing in our culture that connects, right? What is the, what is the, the image I can give you of foot washing is what this is today? And there isn't one. In our, and this is what's tricky about interpreting the Bible. In our Western culture that has been so shaped by the word of God, there's nothing in our culture that demeans people as much as foot washing did then. As we've had 2,000 years of Western, Roman, Catholic, Protestant church culture shaping our, our just philosophies, even outside of the church, there's nothing in our culture that is as demeaning as foot washing was then because of this passage and ones like it. So there's no... There's no somebody said, well, the people that wash your car. <laughs> no, not even close. I have... Any person in our society has infinitely more respect for the person washing their car than people would for people who wash their feet in those days. Maybe if you, 
If you think of the richest, snobbiest, most arrogant, just just like trashy human being you can think of, maybe the way they view some people. But there's nothing in our society that connects. It was, it was the lowest. And maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't. But there's something else that struck me, and I didn't notice this until I was praying through this passage in this context. If I come home, I don't usually have to wash my feet because we wear shoes, right? If I come home, I take my shoes off when I get in the door, right? But if I come in from, maybe I've been out in the woods um, working outside. If I come in with muddy work boots on and I go in and I sit on the couch and I put my feet up on the recliner and then I go and get a snack in the kitchen and then I go to dinner, at that point, it's a little late to be taking those boots off, right? It's a little late. And if my wife were to come to me and say, hey, there's mud all over the house, I'm like, I took my boots off. I took them off after I walked all over the house, but I took them off, it wouldn't quite do it. But look what happens in this passage. It doesn't say, and, and I don't know, maybe I've pictured this wrong sometimes as I've, as I've just kind of imagined the story without reading it, but it wasn't before dinner. It doesn't say as they came in from the road, Jesus waited at the door and washed their feet. It says they were already reclining at the table. And, and it's specific about it, right? It said he rose from supper. He loved them to the end during supper, Jesus knowing, etc., etc., rose from supper. So they're already all sitting around the table. Now, I don't know if we can assume that they've already washed their feet or not. It would make sense that they had. It makes the story sound a little weirder, but, but either way, at, at this point, practically, what Jesus did was like if I took my boots off at the dinner table after wearing them all around the house for the last hour. Whether or not their feet had already been washed, they've already come into the house, they've already sat at the table, and other than maybe making them feel a little bit cleaner, that's not the right time to do that. So they're sitting at the table. Jesus is aware of who he is. He's aware of who's sitting with him at the table. And he gets up in the middle of dinner and washes everyone's feet. Three or four months ago, yeah, three or four, three or four months ago, I was uh, I was at district assembly, and um, I think it was one evening I was in I had a room to myself and I was praying about our church, and from from even early on in the interview process as I started learning about who now we are as a church at the time learning who you were. I had this sense that there were some unique things about New Beginnings 
And there should be unique things about every church, but I struggled to really put into words what it was and to articulate what was unique and what the unique calling of God on our church was. And there were weird things we did that seemed to be good examples of what that was. Things like driving golf carts around a racetrack, things like coming here at one or two o'clock in the morning to help a bunch of runners in a race that just were different, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And the more I prayed about it, in almost what seemed like a moment, the veil just kind of dropped. And I recognize that our church truly loves to serve others. That we have grasped what it means that as Christians, serving isn't just something that we do to accomplish a goal. It's not something that we do as a means to an end. It's not something that we do to get it over with and get on to the fun things we recognize that serving the adoption of Jesus' very nature is just what being a Christian is all about. And so, and so last weekend, when we got here at 2 o'clock in the morning, about 15 to 20 of us, and spent the night serving food to these runners and helping them stay safe in the parking lot and doing all of this crazy stuff and not getting any sleep, there was not a single complaint. There was not a single person that, that said, oh, I can't wait. Like We better make a lot of money for the teens so that this is worth it. And we did make money for our youth group and for sending kids to NYC, and that's fantastic. But it wasn't a means. To, we weren't serving so that we could get just that act of serving itself in the nature of Christ, whether it's doing something that is seemingly grand and noble or something simple, like making sure runners don't get hit by vans, serving was who God has called us to be. And also in that moment, two words just so clearly came across came came into my thoughts came across my mind two words were this serve first and i felt in that moment that this is where god is calling us to focus to be to live as a church is this idea of serving first and i wasn't sure what that meant which is why i'm not preaching this and it's been a long three or four months because I've wanted to. It's why I've waited three or four months to preach this, so I could figure out what it means. But what I've discovered in my life as I've thought about it and as God has continued over and over and over to bring this phrase to mind, and the more I've studied the ideas of being a servant and what it means in the Scriptures the clearer the picture has gotten. That ultimately, 
what this is all about is this chair says I'm first. This chair says I'm never first. Ultimately, that's the distinction. This middle chair is sort of neutral. If I were to invite someone up here, and we both had a dollar, if I'm living in this chair, and say I brought Evan up, we'll just, you can stay there. But if Evan was up here and we both had a dollar, this chair says, take Evan's dollar. At this point, I'm bigger than he is, right? Take advantage of that before he gets older, and I get older, and then he can take advantage of it now, take his dollar. That's what this chair says. This chair says it's not right to take someone else's dollar. Leave him be. You have your own. Don't steal. This chair says give. This chair says take. This chair says don't take. This chair says give. This chair says I'm first. This chair says, we're all important. This chair says, let me serve you. Let me put you first. And as I said when we, when we talked about this idea a, a couple months ago, what's so difficult sometimes is this chair isn't bad. It's not evil. And we can follow all the laws in the Old Testament and not be acting in evil, but not living in the Spirit. We can avoid murdering our entire lives, but still not live a life free from anger, and full of love and grace and peace. And so what I found was, in my life, the continuous reminder to serve first was a challenge to myself to walk and step out of this chair and enter into this one. It was a reminder to say, no, put others first. So I've had times where I will be sitting around the dinner table. And I'm, for whatever reason, I'm not yelling at my kids, not yelling at them, but I'm experiencing frustration, I'm experiencing anger, and I will stand up, and I will just say, I will look around and I will say, God, give me a way. Give me a way to serve others before I serve myself. And sometimes that's as simple as I get up and I get drinks. I say, who needs a refill on their lemonade? Who needs some more milk? the most basic of things to say, no, I'm going to choose to live here. And just that, that little thing. I've had times where I'm maybe going into a difficult conversation with someone. Maybe it's my wife. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's who knows what. And I sit there, and, and, and you've probably experienced this. I say, God, I want to go into this Speaking your words, I want to go into this conversation with your mindset, with your understanding. I want to enter into this conversation the way you want me to. 
I don't want it to be about me. I don't want my desires, my instincts, my preferences to take over. How do I do that? And he says, serve first. If you don't want to go in serving yourself, then make a conscious effort to serve the other person. And so I've been doing this for months. I've had times where I've done what equates to a like a fast except with serving. Where I'll go through just a couple hours or a day where everything I do, I try to find a way to put another person first. I encourage you to do this. I'll go and run errands. I'll go to the store and I'll say, I'm not going to go into the store before I find a way to serve another person. So maybe I go over and I take someone's cart and I put it away for them. And I put myself in that mindset because as a servant, what do you do? You do the hard work. If you're paying someone to do landscaping at your house and they're operating in that, not in a demeaning way, but they're operating as a servant, it means you're paying them to do the hard work. You're paying them to carry the rocks to the side of the property. You're paying them to dig the dirt and do this and do that. So taking the attitude of a servant means I'm doing the tasks that others don't want to do. It means if I'm at a place where we're getting food, I make sure I help someone else get their food before I serve myself dinner. And I'll just go through times where I try to be really focused on in everything I do, making sure I'm never first. And it's begun to shape the way I live. It's begun to shape the way I operate. And so as I've walked through this, I then come to this passage. And I can't help but see that in what Jesus does. He's sitting at the table... He knows what's about to happen. We know later on he goes and he he prays in Gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood. He's so overcome and it's uh, unbelievably troubling. Beyond what we can even comprehend, we know that that has begun to set in and as he sits around that table, this starts to become stronger. And I can imagine Jesus seeing that and standing up and saying, no, I am here to serve. Because he's aware that he's God. He's aware of where he came from. He's aware of where he's returning. He knows that he is stronger, right? Remember the old hymn, he could have called 10,000 angels? If Satan tempted him at the beginning to use his power to save himself, I doubt Satan stopped in this moment. He knew he could have saved himself. He could have removed the whole thing. And he said, no, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to tell his body, to put his flesh in its place, he stands up 
takes off his clothes, puts a towel on his way, around his waist, and he goes to the bottom. He goes as low as he can go, as demeaning, as, as far below. Because he knew he could claim first. He knew he was the greatest that mankind has ever seen. The most perfect, the holy one. He knew he could justify being first. And he said, no, I'm going to be last. Because that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God serves. The Spirit of God puts others first, even those who harm us. And ultimately, that's what we are called to be as a church. We serve first. We allow a local public school to use our building. We don't charge them. We don't extort them because we know that they don't have a building. We don't charge them a fair price. We charge them as little as we possibly can. We don't do that expecting anything back. We don't do that saying, well, we better get some people who start coming on Sunday morning to make it worth it. We do it because God has called us to serve. And that's the first thing that we do. Do we want people to come to church? Absolutely. Do we believe wholeheartedly that entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ will be the greatest thing that ever happened to them? Yes, we believe that. But as far as we are concerned, with our perspective as believers, that's not why we do those things. We do it because if we help them in order to receive something, in order to accomplish something, we step away from the character of Christ. He didn't say, I'm going to die on the cross as long as 55% of the population puts their faith in me. He wasn't concerned about the numbers. He wasn't worried about the return on his investment there. He did it because that was his nature. And we as a church need to remember that. That when we serve, it's just because it's who we're called to be. The world is full of people who do favors and then expect something in return. The world will see that everywhere they turn. And unfortunately, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different areas, the world has also seen that in the church. The church, not necessarily, or just the church in general has too often fallen into serving with contingencies. Even when it's things as simple as we do an outreach and then say, so are we going to see you on Sunday? We may know that it's for their own good, but what they hear is there's a contingency. There's a second motive to why you're doing this for me. We don't need to get the world into our building. 
We just need to be who God has called us to be. That's it. So on your way out today, you're going to get a little sticker. And it looks like this. And my challenge to you is to place that somewhere as a reminder. Because this is something that we need to practice as a people. It's something that we need to be reminded of because we already have our flesh pulling us in one direction continuously. We have this idea sometimes that God should change things in our hearts and then it just works its way out and we just never struggle with the thing again. And that's why this is so important because God can change your heart in a moment, but you're more than just your spirit and our bodies work against us. So my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is to use this phrase as a challenge to that part of you that wants to put yourself first. That says, maybe other people are late to work today, but they're not as late as you are. So you should go first in line. That says, maybe someone else is having a bad day. They should make you feel better. That says, you are the most important. I've read through this passage in a couple moments like that this this week and I was reminded that the Father had given all things to, into Jesus' hands and that Jesus had come from God and that Jesus was going back to God and still he washed feet. I'm not nearly that important. So we're going to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And there's a reason why this message has come forth in this series. Because this, even this can become legalistic. It's not do first. It's not act. It's not work. So the three things from earlier in this message. First of all, as believers, we wear a uniform. And a uniform, whether it's for playing basketball or whether it's for working outside in the middle of winter, the uniform you wear is what you need to best perform the task in front of you. The uniform that we wear as believers is humility. We are lower. We are lower. We put that on like clothing and we wear it. Now humility, that idea, that clothing, when we put that into action, that is service. When we put ourselves below others and then do, that is what biblical servanthood is. And then third, it must be spirit-led. Use the example last week with my kids and what we teach our kids is it's only helping if it's what the person needs. It's only helping if it's what the person needs. We are inclined often to serve in the things that we need, in the things that we would prefer. 
If you're married, if you're newly married, you're going to learn this. If you've been married for a while, you've hopefully figured it out, that there will be times you go to your spouse and you say, I did all these things for you. And they say, you did nothing for me. Because the things that you did were what you wanted, not what I wanted. We must serve led by the Spirit, which is why it's important not to say, serve first, I'm just going to do. It is a prayerful activity of saying, God, how do I serve in this time? God, show me how I can put myself second. Because if I try to serve my wife, and I say, oh, I'm going to serve my wife, I'm just going to do jobs around the house all day today. And my wife is saying, I feel really disconnected from my husband. I'm like, look at me serving. I serve by taking out the garbage, and I serve by building this thing in the yard, and I serve by fixing the cars, and I serve by this and this. And my wife says, I've been alone all day. And I feel great about the to-do list that I just got done while my wife still feels alone. I'm working. I'm working first, but I'm serving myself. So on your way out, you're going to get a little sticker. Just a warning, this first batch is a little lower on the quality side. They're not shiny, so they're not waterproof. So be careful. Like, Don't put it on a water bottle that you want to put in the dishwasher because it'll be a mess. Just, I don't want to ruin any of your stuff. <laughs> but take it and put it somewhere where you're going to see it, where you'll be reminded. And let's begin to adopt this attitude together as a church. We were talking at our board meeting this last week, beginning to develop just some language about our priorities as a church and who we are and figuring out you know, the best ways to say that. But at the heart of it all is, is just these simple two words. Why do we do what we do? Because we as a church serve first. We lower ourselves. We don't worry about what we need. We don't worry about what's best for us. And hey, I'm not saying that I'm perfect at it. But this is who God has called us to be. Let's close in prayer. Father, we... I started reading through the word trying to find examples scattered here and there in the text of ways that this was accomplished. I both found none and found all of them all at the same time. The whole Bible. Father, you created an enormous, beautiful world for us to live in before we even existed to worship you. You were working. You were working in Genesis. Those are the words that you used to describe it. You were working to provide something for us before we even existed to pay anything back to you. Jesus came his entire life from the moment of his conception as he stepped down 
from the heavens into the mess of our world. Every breath he took was an act of service before he was eventually glorified. So Lord, may we as a church adopt that nature. May we put on that uniform of humility. May we clothe ourselves willingly below all others. Seeing others as more important than ourselves. May we be reminded this week when our flesh tells us to preserve our safety, to preserve our needs, when our flesh tells us care for yourself first, may we be reminded to serve others first. To look to the other first in all that we do. May we not get off track. May we not fall into the trap of just doing the work ourselves to try and prove something, but may we be reminded that maybe even sometimes for us, especially as believers, as we interact with one another, that sometimes for us, serving first means allowing someone else to take care of us. That second step of this process, which is not always having to be the ones performing the action. May we be humble in all that we do. May we take on the nature of a servant so we can build your kingdom in your world. Make us like you. Change our hearts transform our bodies, our minds, and our actions. Be with us as we go. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.